I'm going to turn to some scripture a little bit later on, but I want to start by reading a, uh, a letter. And we're continuing our series on prayer. In fact, we're going to end our series on prayer uh, today. And I want to do this by talking about one more kind of prayer. We've looked at warfare prayer. We looked at romance or party prayer, Sabbath prayer last week. And today I want to talk about a final kind of prayer. For some people, in certain situations, this is uh, the most... This is even more fundamental than the kind of prayer we talked about last week. I'm going to call this praying in the abyss. Here's what I mean by the abyss. This, this uh, person expresses it well. A letter I received just uh, two weeks ago. She says, after a little introduction, I'm in a really difficult battle with depression, and I'm asking some foundational questions like, what's the point? I certainly can't fathom how God can restrain... I'm going to tell you ahead of time, this is a hard-hitting letter. In fact, this whole message is kind of a hard-hitting message. Uh, But it's about reality, and reality sometimes is hard-hitting, isn't it? Uh, Reality sometimes bites, and we've got to deal with it. I certainly can't fathom how God can restrain His loving kindness and fatherly protection and defense, or why He would do so, or how we're supposed to function within those realities on this despicable planet. I'm a pathetic, sinful slob, she says, and I wouldn't let strangers or enemies get raped like my 12-year-old daughter or starved to death like millions of his own children do every day. Yet this perfect father who promised he wouldn't give us rocks for bread or snakes instead of fish, who clothes the fields in gorgeous flowers and keeps track of every sparrow who dies and every hair on our balding heads, this powerful, omnipotent king of kings, Hangs, hang out, hangs out with us weeping and impotent while, while all hell influences. No, it sometimes overtakes his children, houses and streets and souls. I'm confused about why we're here, putting off the final and eternal relief of exiting this cosmic outhouse and entering the realm of his kingdom and presence, pain-free and joy-filled. What the hell are we waiting for? I doubt if I'd hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if I willfully went for the exit. I know he'd be displeased with this inconsistently good and often unfaithful servant. I'm not suicidal. I'm just very stuck and very depressed. You ever been there? I have no vision for this hope and future, he says, he's got for me. And I have a part which wonders how to believe, how to even believe that, when declarations of need meeting and blessing have not seemed consistent in my life, I don't know. I'm jobing, I guess. Have you ever been there? This is what I call the abyss. I'm wondering how you respond to a, a person who, who uh, is in this situation. When you hear that letter, I bet for some it kind of evokes a little bit of anger. How dare you insult God like that? Maybe for others it invites concern. Yeah, those are questions I've had. You know, she's got a point there. Uh, you know, how do we answer that? Maybe for some of a, uh, for, for some of you, like me, it, it, it uh, evokes a desire to want to fix her. Well, I've got the answer to that question. So I want to jump in there with my answer. And maybe for others, it's simply a, a, a sense of congruity with where this person's at. Wow, I'm there. Or I was there last week. This is, this is in the abyss. And how do you respond to people when they're amidst, uh, in the midst of the abyss? See, last week we talked about the, the, the foundation of Christianity, the essence of Christianity. 
is not our doing. It's, it's not our performance. It's not what we think we do for God. The essence of Christianity at the heart of Christianity is a party, we said. Uh, it, it is relating to God on the basis of what He's done. The core of Christianity is not about our working for God. It's about our resting in God. And there needs to be a time. This is the most fundamental kind of prayer I can think of. Where you romance God, you look deep in His eyes, you let Him look into your eyes, you let him, you hear the words of love that He says to you, you say words of love back to Him, you celebrate God, you shout for joy, you dance before God, you wave your hands before God, you know, you just uh, you party with God. This is the Sabbath prayer, and that's all true. It's 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 essential. Uh, you know, I don't take back a word of that. That's all right there in the Word. Christianity is about being invited to a party. But the question I want to ask this morning is this. What do you do when things are, are uh, so dark and so confusing and you're so distraught that you can't even get there? You can't even rest in the Lord. You can't even see His face. You can't, you're too numb to sense His presence. When one thought doesn't line up with another thought, when the world is maybe caved in on you, when dreams have come crashing in, and all is dark around you when you're in the situation of this person. Does it mean that there, there is no prayer that you can pray? Since you can't pray the party prayer. You can't pray the romance prayer. You, it's just not there with you. The reality of your situation is that you just don't even have the strength to rest or the clarity of thought to see the, the goodness of God and the beauty of God. And people in this situation, as, as some of us know from experience, often feel like they're just outsiders. You're aliens in the body of Christ. You don't belong. Other people can have joy, but you can't have joy. And other people can have peace, but you can't have peace. And other people get blessed, but you get cursed. And you can't join the party, so you feel like you're ostracized. You're not part of the kingdom of God. Maybe you're not even saved. You certainly must lack faith. You feel like an outsider. And sometimes, and I hate to say it, but, but it's true, Sometimes Christians reinforce this, this uh, attitude towards people when they're in the midst of uh, the abyss. The church sometimes sends that message to people when they're going through these uh, dark situations that they're really not, they've been disqualified from the party. They're not really part of us. You see, they take the truth that the essence of Christianity is joy and they mistakenly go one step further and say that Christianity is only about joy. They take the truth that the essence of Christianity is joy, and they go one step further and they say that the only thing Christianity is about is joy. So Christianity is all positive. Christianity is all wonderful. Christianity is all about the up and up. Jesus uh, gives us joy, so if your life's in despair, you're not part of our club. This is what I'd call rah-rah happy club Christianity. Rah-rah happy club Christianity. Jesus gives peace, so if you're full of anxiety and worry, then you're just not part of our club. God blesses us, so if you're feeling cursed, well, you're just not part of our club. God's good all the time, and if you don't see that, you're just not part of our club. We are conquerors in Christ Jesus, so if your life is defeated, you're just not part of our club. I'm safe in the arms of Jesus, so, so if you just went through some major tragedy, well, you're just not part of the club. Because we celebrate how we're safe in Jesus. And God is all holy. And so if you're struggling with some pretty profound sin in your life, it's your own fault. Get your act together and then maybe you can join our club. And we send the message, don't come until your act is together. And if your act, if your act is not together, if your life is kind of screwed up, if you're in the middle of the abyss, you've been disqualified from the party. 
You're outside the parameters of the kingdom. Rah, rah, happy club Christianity. It's kind of the idea of this. We are the happy people. You know, we're the, we're the up and up people. We are the joyful people. We are the victorious people. We are the blessed people. The rah, rah, happy club people. Life is all good for us because we know Jesus and Jesus makes our life wonderful. And if your life doesn't fit our theology, well then, you're not part of our club until you get your act together and become one of the happy people. The perpetually smiling people. The life is wonderful in Jesus' people. Christianity then turns into sort of a Pollyanna, uh, Pollyanna, Ken and Barbie doll, dog and pony show. You know, it's just, it's just Ken and Barbie doll. Right? Everything's perfect. Everything's perfect. We're the perfect people. We have perfect marriages. We have perfect churches. We have perfect lives, perfect jobs, perfect demeanors. We're perfect, 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 perfect. This is Tinseltown Christianity. This is the Christianity of glyphs and neon signs and wow and the perpetual Kodak moment Christianity. Hallmark Christianity. You know, it's just all so wonderful and lovely. You know, what we need to see, it, 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 the thing is, is that it's so profoundly shallow. I, I, I sometimes, some of the stuff I see that goes on in the name of Christianity just turns my stomach because it's just all so, it, it's just all so glitter and glitz and and, and you wonder, where's the reality? Where's the reality? Are these people at all in touch with the war zone that's going on around us? And, and, and what I want to say this morning in essence is this. God, God is into reality. He's not into glitz. He's not into glitter. He's not into neon science. He's never been impressed with a dog and pony show. And he didn't come to send, save Ken and Barbie dolls. God came to save real people, amen, with real struggles. He's a real God who is a real Savior, offers real salvation to real people who sometimes have real struggles and sometimes even sink into real despair. But He's a real God of real people when they're in real despair. I don't see Jesus walking around as a cheerleader during His ministry. He wasn't just an up-with-humanity sort of rah-rah sort of a person. He didn't come and minister just to Ken and Barbie dolls. He was a real Savior who dealt with real people in real situations, offering real solutions to their real problems, praise God. The only commodity that God trades in is the commodity of reality. And He's not impressed with glitz and glitter and neon signs and wow and perfect all this, that, and the other thing. But when we're influenced by this rah-rah happy club Christianity, to the extent that we are, that affects our prayer life. It affects our prayer life. The assumption is that God is only interested in and what is good, and in, in, in the good part of us. You only want us to hear good things, the pious things, the respectful things, the wonderful things. So we go to God. It's like we uh, sometimes dress up to go to the house of God because he, he likes to see us, in our, as I was always taught, in your Sunday best. Well, we, go, we, we put on our Sunday best, whether it's clothes or a smile or an artificial appearance. Uh, and, and then when we pray, we sometimes put on our best, our God best. We present to Him, put our best foot forward. You know, we're talking to the supreme deity here, right? So uh, we put our best foot forward. And some circles, this comes out sort of in, in a sense of artificial language that people sometimes use. You know, they, they, there's a certain lingo, a certain God lingo that you use when you talk to God. O thou God, thither on high, we wouldest that thou would beseech thy humble servants as thou thither he goeth, whither he hither, or whatever. You know, and it, it's this King James lisp thing, you know. Um, I don't know why, and they always speak in subjunctives too. We would that thou would come to us. Are you saying you want him to come to you? Or, 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 we would that thou wouldest. wouldest. Now people don't talk like this. This isn't, the, this isn't the way you really talk. You're not communicating your real heart there. When you come home from work, you don't say, 
uh, oh honey, I wouldest that thou would give me hither a hug. And I beseech thee, uh, give me sustenance for my, my mortal body. You, know, you don't talk like that. You say, honey, I need a hug. You know, I'm hungry, you know. But see, there's this sense that, that when you go to God, you've got to do the artificial list thing or something. Now, now we are not maybe influenced by that. But this rah-rah happy club, always pious, up and up Christianity, influences you in other ways. Here's one way it influences people very commonly. When you go to God, you don't pour out your heart. You don't deal with the reality that is there. Uh, you maybe pray about all the things you're supposed to pray, and you present to God all the things that are, are the way they're supposed to be, but you hide all the things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. So you go to prayer, and God's saying, hey, you know what, Greg, I think I want to deal with this issue in your life here. Can we talk about this issue, this, 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 ask, this area of your life that you're just not surrendering to me? I want to talk about that. And I'm like, oh, God, bless the children's ministry. Oh, God, pour out your spirit. Now, Greg, I want to talk about this uh, sin in your life. I know God and bless the missionaries, you know, and oh God, just raise up people to help with the greeters. Greg, can we talk about this? And we, we pray around the issues that God wants to deal with. Why? Because we don't want to deal with that reality. It's ugly. And, and, and our, I, I, if you're influenced by rah-rah, happy club Christianity, you don't think God wants to deal with that. He's too holy for that kind of ugly stuff. And so our prayer life becomes artificial. And what happens is that people, when, when you're in the midst of the abyss, if you're influenced by the rah-rah, happy club Christianity, you just stop praying because you're too tired to put on this show anymore. You've blown the, the, the Ken doll, Barbie doll cover. It's obvious that you're not that. And since you thought God was interested in that, maybe you just stop talking to Him. And you push God out precisely when you need Him most. What, what I, I want us to see, and Lord, help us to see here this morning is this. God is not interested in nice presentations. He's not interested in perfect people. He's not interested in nice lingo. He's not interested in the beautiful behavior uh, what he's interested in, what he's in love with, what he died for was you. What he's interested in, what, it, what he died for was you. He wants you, the real you, right where you're at, right here and now. He wants an intimate relationship with us. What prayer is, after 13 weeks of preaching on this, I'll sum it all up like this. What prayer most essentially is, is gut level, honest talking with God. God wants an intimate relationship with you. But you can't have an intimate relationship to the extent that you're putting on something other than you to relate to the person or to God. He wants you, he wants to have you right where you're at. And sometimes where you're at is not very good. Sometimes where you're at is rather despondent. Sometimes where you're at is maybe stained by a lot of sin. Sometimes where you're at is where you're in a lot of confusion. Sometimes where you're at isn't even being very fond of God. But what you need to know is this, wherever you're at, God wants to start where you're at and He can deal with it. And if you just keep the lines of honest, gut-level communication open, you give God a chance to keep on working in your life. Being in the midst of the abyss does not mean that you're outside the parameters of the kingdom. No, you're still in the kingdom. Just keep on talking to the king. That's what prayer is about. Honestly, being real before a real God who really loves you despite the real issues that you're struggling with. One of the things that just delights me about the Bible is that it's not your typical holy book. It really is not your typical holy book. It's full of real stuff. And some of the prayers in the Bible aren't very flowery and fluffy and, and, and uh, rah-rah happy sort of things. They're honest. They're honest. Let me give a couple examples of these. We've been looking at the book of Job quite a bit. Look at jo- some of Job's things that Job says about God. God mocks. We've looked at these a couple times before, but I, I just love this stuff. God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. 
He covers the eyes of its judges. God purposely covers the eyes of the judges so they can't judge rightly. If it is not he, then who is it? This is Job in the middle of despair. Job in the middle of despair. A lot of terrible, unintelligible stuff has happened to him. And he's starting to say what is really on his heart. He's speaking from the gut here. And he's saying, you know what? All the injustice of the world is God's fault. And God laughs. He mocks. He taunts the calamity of the innocent. Now, is that theologically accurate? No, of course it's not theologically accurate. But it's coming from the gut. From the city, he says in Job 24, from the city of the dying groan, and the throat of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayer. Sounds a little bit like, uh, like this uh, letter here, doesn't it? What you need to know is this, that when you're in this state, it doesn't mean that you can pray. What it means is this, that can itself be a prayer. The Lord puts this in His Word, not because it's theologically accurate, but because it comes from the gut. It's honest. It's honest. Job says this to the Lord, Bold as a lion you hunt me. Let me alone that I might find a little comfort. Now there's a prayer for you. God, will you just leave me alone so I can get a little peace, get a little comfort? But what's beautiful is this. God doesn't go, How dare you talk to me like that? Where's the wither and the thithers and the hithers? You know, where, where's the pious foot forward? Yeah, how dare you come to me and say that kind of stuff? What God is delighted in is the fact that Job's still talking to him. You're still talking to me. Now you're, you're way off base in what you're feeling and you're way off base in what you're thinking, but the lines of communication are open. I'm going to take this prayer and put it in my word. Praise God. And it's because it comes from the gut. It comes from his heart. God has worn me out. He has shriveled me up. Job says he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. The Bible says that Satan is our adversary, but here Job says that God is his adversary. He sharpens his eyes against me. All right? He gnashes his teeth at me. See, Job has got a jaded picture of God here. But what is wonderful is the fact that Job still has the lines of communication open. Now, when God shows up in the end and, and gives his monologue that, that sets the record straight about this whole evil that's been happening, he doesn't condone Job's theology. He doesn't condone the theology of Job's friends. He gives an entirely different perspective on the matter. And we dealt with that about four weeks ago or so. But what, what, what is beautiful is this. The Lord, when he shows up at the end, he says this about Job in Job 42, verse 7. The Lord said to Eliphaz the, the Temanite. Eliphaz was one of Job's uh, three friends. They were rah-rah happy club friends. You know, and, and, and they were constantly pounding on Job throughout the whole book of Job. He says to Eliphaz, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. I'm ticked off at you three guys, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me what is right. Now, is the Lord saying, Job said it had the true theology, but you had the false theology? There are people who read the book of Job that way, and I think it has catastrophic consequences because it means you've got to really believe that God doesn't listen to the prayers of the innocent, that God mocks the calamity of, of, of uh, the innocent, that God really hated Job. That isn't correct theology. What's the, what does the Lord mean here? Well, sometimes you've got to dig into the original language. It's interesting that the word translated right in this passage is the Hebrew word kun, which means to establish, to be loyal, to be solid, to have a foundation. It means it comes from the bottom. It's got foundation to it. It's got reality to it. It's not the usual word that's translated as true in Hebrew. The usual word is the word met, which means correct or true, faithful or sound. 
God isn't saying Job had the correct theology. But what God is saying is this. Job, Job spoke to me honestly. Job spoke honestly. His prayer came from the gut. It didn't look pretty. It didn't sound pretty. It wasn't particularly nice. In fact, he threw some pretty hefty insults my way. But it came from the gut. He's my servant. And it came from his gut. You guys, the Lord chastises the three friends because he's basically saying this. You guys didn't speak from your gut. You spoke this artificial, self-serving, Pollyanna, bubbly, bubbly, dog and pony show, Ken and Dowell gig uh, theology. You, as, as often happens, when people go into despair, many times believers just say what will reinforce their theology. They don't want to believe that the world can be as scary as it looks when, if, in fact, what happened to you can happen to me. So we have a self-serving, reinforcing theology. That's what happened in the book of Job, and God gets ticked off at that. They should have done what they did at the beginning of the book, and that is just enter into Job's pain. But instead, they start landing on him all these cliches, shallow cliches about what they think is true, and God gets ticked off. What God loves is a prayer that comes from the God. What it shows us is this. God loves you more, even more, than theological propriety. What he wants is the real you. He wants, he wants to, to work with you and bring you to the point where you can see clearly and think clearly and have a theology and a picture about him that's accurate. But he starts with where you're at. And if where you're at is all screwed up, God starts with your screwed upness. And the most important thing is this. Keep the lines of communication open. Talk to God from your gut. Be real. He knows what you're thinking anyways. You might as well just tell him. And in telling him, you give him a chance to work in your life. The Bible's full of prayers like we find in Job. Not at all your normal, pious, evangelical, wonderful, theologically accurate prayers. David, for example, the Psalms are full of prayers like this. About a third of the Psalms, by the way, are what are called lament Psalms, where David is crying out to God. And many of those cries are about why. Why do you let the heathen rage? He says this in, in Psalms 22. Oh my, oh, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but you, I find no rest. You rah-rah people, you're always saying, and this is true, God answers prayer. But I don't see it in my life. I cry, by day, I cry to God and by day and I cry by night and He doesn't answer my prayer. And I don't find any rest. And where's this peace that passes understanding? It doesn't line up with my experience. And the rah-rah happy club people are going to say, Oh, you must not say that. You must not confess that. You must not go there. Stop it right now. But God says, you know what? That comes from the gut. I'm going to put that one in my word. That's an inspired prayer. Not because it's accurate, but because it comes from the bottom. Kuhn. It has a base to it. It's got reality to it. Isaiah 44, David says, Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, God? <laughs> Are you mad at God for sleeping? Awake. Do not cast, your, cast us off forever. You, the assumption is you are casting us off. Will you just stop doing it forever? Will you wake up, God? Hello. Do you know what's going on down here? This is David, a man after God's own heart, speaking from the gut. Sometimes you go there. It's the abyss. Don't stop praying when you do. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? So here God apparently is sleeping. God is uncaring and God is forgetful. Not exactly right theology, but it comes from the gut. God says, you know what? That comes from the gut. It's honest. It's raw. I'm going to put it in my word. Why? Because God loves you even more than he loves theological propriety. Jeremiah had a lot of prayers along these lines. Jeremiah chapter 20. For example, O Lord, Thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. Ouch! You know, the truth is that God never deceives. He's light. There is no darkness in Him. Uh, the truth is that He's altogether good. Uh, he's altogether truth. But here Jeremiah, in the middle of a very despairing situation, says, Thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. 
You have overcome me and prevailed. You win. Checkmate. You're God. I'm not. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. So here's, here's Jeremiah, the great prophet of God. I mean, this isn't some, you know, uh, just bystander. This is Jeremiah, the prophet, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But he hit bottom. Even great saints of God hit bottom sometimes. And when you hit bottom sometimes, you don't see perfectly clearly. You don't think perfectly clearly. Your feelings can get all screwed up. So here Jeremiah is saying, God, you deceived me. So, of course, I was deceived. You're the creator. I'm not. You checkmated me. You prevail. You win. And now I'm a laughing stock. Thanks a lot. And I can just hear the rah-rah happy club Christians saying, whoa, wait a minute. No, 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 la, 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 la. We're not listening to you because that's an accurate theology. We are happy all the time. God is truthful all the time. God is good all the time. God is just all the time. Uh, you're not part of our club because your theology isn't right. Get away from us. But God says, no, 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 no. You're close to me because your heart's in the right place. Your head's totally screwed up, Jeremiah, but your heart is in the right place and you're talking to me. You're talking to me. I'm going to take that one. I'm going to put it in my word. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. God judges Prayers by their authenticity, even more profoundly than, the, than by their theological accuracy. And then, of course, you have Jesus crying on the cross. This one's profound. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus was God. Jesus was God. The word forsaken there means to, uh, to run away from, to leave someone in a lurch, to totally abandon them. Did God really do that to Jesus? Wasn't this the plan all along? Wasn't this, in fact, what, what, what the, why he came into the world? It was. And Jesus was God while he's hanging on the cross crying this. But you see, when all the sin of the world was put upon Jesus and all the condemnation of the sin of the world was put upon Jesus, you know what? You feel forsaken. And Jesus has a perfect relationship with the Father and therefore has an intimate relationship with the Father and therefore what is on the heart comes out of the mouth. What is on the heart comes out of the mouth. And what comes out of the mouth isn't uh, by theological criteria, perfectly accurate, but by existential or personal criteria, it is perfectly accurate. Jesus Christ, why have you abandoned me out here? Why have you left me alone, Father? And I can hear the rah-rah Christians saying to the Savior, what kind of a witness is this? It says he cried with a loud voice. He didn't just mumble this. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna have doubts, keep them to yourself, will you? I mean, you know, if you're gonna accuse God, kind of mumble it under your breath. I mean, you've got a witness to uphold here. There are people to save here. Come on, let's get the theological stuff right. You know, here Jesus is supposed to be saving the world. He's supposed to be the Savior. He's supposed to be God. He's hanging on the cross, but he cries out with a loud voice, right in the hearing distance of all the Roman guards, the very ones he's dying for. Why have you forsaken me? What kind of a witness is this? What kind of a savior is this? You know, why can't we have a nice courageous statement? Something a little bit on the up and up, Jesus. Something a little bit, you know, give us some encouragement here, Jesus. But you see, the most important thing is Jesus understands and as we need to understand is this. Does it come from the gut? Does it come from the gut? Is it real? Are you dealing with God real? Are you a real person acknowledging the real issue, praying to a real God? God wants an intimate relationship with us, and that's what prayer is all about. And intimacy only comes when the inside is on the outside. When you are honest before God, exactly what is. Here's a snapshot of my life right here and right now. The reality of the situation is this. Sometimes we get into the abyss, whether we do it to ourselves or someone does it to us, or maybe just life is life. Sometimes it just bites for no reason whatsoever, and you fall into the abyss. 
And when you're in that abyss, all there is is confusion and all there is sometimes is pain and, and, and the world is a whirlwind. I can't believe that my marriage came to an end. I can't believe it. I thought I'd always live happily ever after. I always prayed that I'd live happily after. I thought I always had God's promise that my marriage would live happily ever after. I thought divorce was always something that happened to other people. And here I am, a divorcee, the word itself. I can't believe it happened to me. Confusion. can't believe that I came down with cancer. The doctor says I'm terminally ill. I, what happened to the promises of God? I can't believe that my child is dead. I can't believe that my spouse is dead. I can't believe that every dream I've ever dreamed of and striven for has come has crashed in on me. Life becomes the abyss. It becomes dark. It becomes confusing. And you can't think straight. You can't put two coherent thoughts together. You can't see the, the, the beauty of Jesus Christ, maybe. You can't sense the lovingness of His presence. You can't walk in that peace that passes understanding. Does it mean you're outside the club, outside the kingdom? No, it does not. In times like this, what the Lord is saying to us is, is this. Uh, talk to me. Talk to me. Uh, uh, keep the lines of communication open to me. The rah-rah Christians may say, you know what? Uh, you're not a part of us. You, you, you know, they Get your act together and then come join the party. But God says, no, you're still inside my arms. Talk to me. Keep the lines of communication open. That's what a healthy relationship is all about. A healthy marriage isn't a perfect, perfect good-looking marriage. I worry about marriages that are perfectly good-looking. Uh, I, I just uh, I just trust them because a lot of times it's just artificial. A healthy relationship is one where where what's on the inside comes on the outside because you're relating to real people. Okay, there's an honesty that is there. So it is with God. He says, talk to me wherever you're at. Wherever you're at is where God is at. He wants to start where you are because He's in love with you. Keep the lines of communication open. And if all you can do is scream, then God says scream. If all you can do is rage, then God says rage. I'll take that. If, 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 if what is real in terms of, of where you're at is that, that you think God's to blame, then blame Him. It's not theologically accurate, but God's big enough to take it. You see that in the, in, in the, in the, in the Psalms. You see that throughout the Bible. He's not a prissy God who gets offended and put, picks up a thunderbolt ready to throw at you. He's saying, good, it's coming from the gut. Talk to me. Keep the lines of communication open. If all you can do is beat on my chest, then go ahead and beat on my chest. But you've got to know this. My arms are stronger than your arms, and I'm going to keep on holding you. And see, when we're honest with God in the midst of the abyss... We give God a chance. The lines of communication are open and we give God a chance to begin to work with us in the middle of the abyss to bring us out of the abyss. If you think that God has uh, put you at distance when you're in the middle of this despair, then you put God at distance and now you reject God right when you need Him most. And now you're stuck. You get stuck in this whole thing because you don't have anything bigger than yourself to pull yourself out. Keep the lines of communication open. When we're honest with God, we give Him a chance to bring healing in our life we give Him a chance to begin to show us that He loves us more than our theological propriety. He loves us uh, in the midst of, of our struggles and, and what we're going through. We give God a chance to prove that if we just keep the lines of communication open. Sometimes, when you are honest with God in the midst of the abyss, you'll re He'll reveal new things about Himself to you. One of my greatest experiences in my life was, was when I hit rock, rock bottom. I've shared the experience a number of times before. Um, but, but it, 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 in essence, is this. Uh, two years into my Christian walk, I was uh, 19 years old at the time, I, I was struggling with sin in a legalistic environment that didn't deal with reality at all. You didn't talk about the stuff that I was struggling with. It had been a pornography thing since I was 12 years old, and I tried so hard to quit it, but I kept falling back into it. And this wasn't the kind of environment where you could just deal with that stuff. Honestly, you weren't supposed to have those kind of struggles. No one else in the church did. You know, something must be wrong with you. It's your own fault. You're not part of our club. 
And so I just dealt with this thing over and over again. And, and uh, I finally, at, at the end of two years, just, just bottomed out. I got tired of the whole thing. I get resaved and, and unsaved every week. You know, and I, I was thinking, God is getting tired of it. And, I, and I, my picture of God was of this kind of hyper, uh, oh, uptight tax accountant who is just keeping record of all your, your, your no, no, I'm not getting a, a tax accountants. I love you. I, I'm talking about, you know, but someone just is going to take, you know, but a hyper uptight one, okay? Uh, all you tax accountants are loose. But, but you know, he, he's just, he, he's keeping record of everything that you do. And, and it's like, oh, you know, gosh, he, he loves me just on the basis of whether I'm doing, having a good day or a bad day. And, and I didn't particularly like that, that, that view of God, but that's what I thought was true. And after two years, I bottomed out, walked out of a church service one Sunday evening, a hellfire and damnation sermon like I usually heard, and, and uh, surprisingly enough, I didn't go forward. This was usually the night where I got resaved. Uh, but this time, I, I, I was done with that. Instead of going forward, I went backward, went out to the parking lot with a friend who was in a similar situation, and I just uncorked. I just gave up. I began to say what was really on my heart. And it didn't look pretty. It didn't sound pretty. It was nasty stuff, I'm telling you. I thought I was going to hell. If I'm going to go to hell, I might as well just get this off my chest. God, I don't particularly like you. You set me up from the beginning. So I was like, Jeremiah, you've deceived, deceived me, so guess what? I was deceived. You gave me these hormones and put me in this family and yada, 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 and I didn't stand a chance. I hope you're happy about this, God. And I don't particularly like your plan of salvation uh, with all these holy works that you're supposed to do. And I don't particularly like your Bible, which is a book of rules. And I don't particularly like your church, which is full of a bunch of stuffy people who uh, aren't real and, and, and uh, they're, they're not loving and they're not forgiving. And the whole thing stinks as far as I'm concerned. Nasty, nasty stuff. And what was amazing is this. When I thought I was going to hell, I was actually getting closer to God. Why? Because for the first time in my Christian walk, I was getting honest with God. And then he revealed to me something that very night, and it was a, a coincidental thing. How I, I was mocking God, and I opened my Bible, and I started to read the Bible in a, in a mocking way, in a sarcastic way. My friend said, you know, Greg, do you think we're missing something? You know, what are we missing? And I opened up this Bible, uh, and I just started reading mockingly. I said, well, what is it then? Is it this verse? I started reading Romans 8.1 in a sarcastic voice. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Is that what you're looking for? And uh, all of a sudden, something hit me. And I read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Is that what you're looking for? And I must have read that thing 15 times. And see, all of a sudden, a light went on. A light went on. And it's the whole light that I preached on last week, and I preached on a lot, about how our relationship with God is based on being, not doing. The doing follows the being, and the being is found in Christ Jesus. And for the first time in my life, I discovered that I was loved for free. He, didn't, he, he detested my behavior uh, in, in the pornography stuff, but he empowered me to get out of it, not by putting the relationship at the end of that struggle, but at the beginning of the struggle. You see, and, and I, I, I all of a sudden got a picture of God that was worth living for, that I was actually motivated to live for, and it wasn't just fear of hell. Now it was the beauty of, of, of who God was. And see, the thing was this. You know, just when I thought I was going to hell... Uh, and I was getting closer and closer to the fire. I was actually getting closer and closer to God. Why? Because I was getting honest with God. And it's like God was saying, finally, you know, you, I'm sure all the rah-rah Christian happy people friends would be up there saying, Boyd's going to get it tonight. Watch out. The thunder's going to fall. We're talking Sodom and Gomorrah here, man. God's got the thunderbolt. Listen to that blasphemer railing in the parking lot. But all the while, God's up there saying, you're finally getting real with me. You're talking coon here. You're talking from the bottom of your heart. You're, you're, you stop pretending. You're giving me your honest self. 
Now, finally, I can get through to you, Boyd. I can finally reveal something real to you. Why? Because your heart's finally open. Keep the line of communication open. The prayer of of despair is an authentic prayer. What God wants is your heart, your honest, real heart. Sum it up. Number one, be honest with God. Be honest with God about the failings in your life, the sin in your life. Whatever's real, be honest with God. Even the things you don't want to change right now, tell Him that. Tell Him that. Bring that out there. He knows it already. What are you hiding about? Bring it out that it gives Him a chance. It gives Him a chance to begin to change who you are. Only when you're honest with God where you are, you give Him a chance to move from where you are to where He wants you to be. But you've got to keep the lines of communication open. Secondly, when you're dealing with a person that's in the middle of the abyss, don't do what Job's friends did. Don't turn rah-rah, happy Christian stuff on them. Uh, that's not what they need. Job's friends did it right at first. They shut up. Job was in the middle of despair. They joined him. They, they, they rent their clothes. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They mourned with him. That's what you do. There's a place where, when, 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 the, when the world comes to an end for a person. What, what they need more than anything else is, is for someone else to be there when the world comes to an end. To know that you're there. All you can say is, I'm sorry this happened to you. And when things start coming out of their mouth, Job's friends did the right thing until all of a sudden Job starts saying this, God mocks the innocent and God rips me apart and God's a roaring lion and he's my adversary. Now all of a sudden, the rah-rah people got to fix it. They don't want to hear this stuff. So they want to fix him and they want to fix this theology and they start indicting him. When a person vents, let him vent. If it's coming from the heart, it's healthy. It may not be pleasant to hear, but life sometimes isn't pleasant. You let the person vent and you embrace them. And if they're going on a tailspin downward, you grab onto their tail and you just ride it through with them. What they need more than anything else is for someone who loves them more than their words, loves them more than their their correct theology, and and, and gives them permission to be real. And there maybe will come a time where where, where it will be appropriate to say some encouraging words and to give some truth and to help them out of it. But that's not the first thing that happens and you've got to be sensitive. Uh, about when that is. got to follow the Spirit. The first word out of your mouth shouldn't be, well, God's still on His throne and all things work together for the better. Don't you know that? What's wrong with you? No. First thing is to hug them and to just say, uh, I'm sorry about what's happened here. Enter into it with them. And that's, how, that's what God does with them. That's what we as the body of Christ need to, to do with them. This should never, it must never, I will not let it ever be a rah-rah happy club Christianity. It's about joy. It's about profound joy. It really is. That's the essence. And we're not going to stop rejoicing because there are hurting people. No, you've got to rejoice. And, and it's about celebration. It's about dancing. And it's about shouting. It really is that. But that doesn't exclude people who aren't there. We embrace people who aren't there. And we deal with reality, uh, not, not, not with surfacey stuff. When, you, when, you, when you've been through the abyss, it refines you. You know that? It seasons you. And, and when you walk with God through it and you come out of it, you find the joy again. You really do. But it's more profound. And you're not very impressed with the tinsel anymore, with the, with the, 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 bar, the Barb and Ken doll show anymore, the dog and pony show anymore. The things that maybe you know, excite people just don't excite you that much anymore. What excites you is Jesus Christ. What excites you is Jesus Christ. The only thing that really impresses you after you've been through the abyss is Jesus Christ. And you thank God for good stuff, nice buildings, air conditioning, wonderful worship music. You know, you thank God for all that stuff and for the excitement of a crowd and a growing church and whatever. But you know what? That's not what, that's not what turns you really on. What turns you on is Jesus Christ. Because all that stuff is meaningless without Jesus Christ. 